We're making faster progress in Genesis than I thought. I was thinking originally this would be like three and a half years. It's looking more like maybe under two, but we'll see. We're not in a hurry, but we're, covering, we're actually going to cover part of three chapters today. Um, it's good to have new people in God's house this morning. We have several first-time guests. Let's give them a hand and welcome them this morning. We are so glad you're here. All right. So we are in Genesis chapter 9. We're going to finish that. Chapter 10, as you'll see in just a second. It's an interesting chapter because it's called the Table of Nations, and it actually gives a whole list of where everybody came from, starting with Noah's three sons. But we'll cover that in more in a little bit. But I'll, I'm going to read for you. You follow along on the screen or on your own Bible or device. It says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So chapter 10, like I said, is a, a table of nations. We're not going to read through the whole thing right now. We'll go over it as an overview here in just a little bit. Then we move on to chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord God came, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is, the only, this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing will be, they propose to do will now be impossible to them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. And let's read this verse together, everybody. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So, I don't know if you've experienced this, but you ever uh, walk out in your garage and it's just totally messed up? <laughs> in fact, the garage is the most ironic part of the American house. It's a part that's designed for a car, and yet, probably 85% of Americans don't have a car in their garage. Now, some of you few organized people with no kids probably have a car in your garage, okay? But there's many of us that do not. And so we see this garage, and what do we do? We take a Saturday, and we knock it out, and we make it look amazing, and we're so thankful, and we're going to say, now we're going to start parking a car in here, and we're going to keep it organized, and then four months later, it's back to where it was. And you're like, oh yeah, here we go again. And, that, and here we go again is what's happening right here in this chapter of the Bible we just read. God created Adam and Eve. He told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. <clears throat> and God was going to bless them as they did that. And of course, what did they do? They disobeyed. God gave them a second chance with their sons. And of course, what did Cain do? He killed his brother. We're off to a horrible start. And the world only gets worse. And so billions of people later, and a couple of thousand years later, the Bible says that the world was filled with violence 
and man's every thought was only evil continually. And God says, oh man, this is such a mess. I'm going to wipe out the face of the earth with a worldwide flood. And we talked about that in the weeks past. And if you miss those, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them online. But God wipes it all out, picks one righteous man, Noah, and his three sons and says, we are going to start over. We're going to get a, a clean start, if you will. And of course, not very long later, the world is wicked again and making a mess of everything. And so what we want to learn this morning is how can we break that cycle of the whole here we go again and falling into our sin? Because not only does the world do that, spiraling downward, we all do that. If we're not careful, we all do that. You know, you could work really hard in July and August to lose weight, get in shape, and then the holidays come, and you're like, oh, man, here we go again. And you, you put it all back on, and then you, you lose some weight, or whatever, you get in shape, whatever it may be, whether it's your money, your thought life, your marriage. If we are not careful, we will find ourselves going, here we go again, starting over that same cycle. So you go from the flood to Babel, and this cycle is repeating itself. And the, the pattern of man's failure and God's patience is all over the Bible. Man messes up, God shows forgiveness and love and patience and gives man another chance. We talked about this last week. When you look at the whole macro view of history, it's what's called dispensations or dispensationalism. Paul uses this phrase a couple times in the New Testament. It, the Greek word literally means an economy. It's like the rules of which we're operating under. You know, God gives man certain responsibilities Man fails at them, so God fixes things for man and then moves on to another situation. So, like, and I just want to review this quickly. And we had handouts last week. You probably could still find some on your chairs. I'm seeing a lot out there. If you want to look at it or keep it, feel free to take that home. But there's seven dispensations. God's week of history, which is not surprising that number seven is there. The first dispensation was the dispensation of innocence. Adam and Eve were not created perfect. They were created what? innocent. So they had choice. They weren't, if they were perfect, they would not have chosen evil. They were innocent, so they had the freedom of choice. And of course, they're told to do three things. Be fruitful, multiply, take care of the garden, and don't eat of the forbidden trees. And of course, we know which sin they committed, and they failed. And so the result of that was um, the curse, and death was introduced. So God curses the, the woman, the serpent, the ground for Adam's sake, and all those curses are pronounced. So we move into the next dispensation, which is conscience. Hey, people, just do what's right. You, in fact, we don't have to have the Ten Commandments to know what's right and wrong, right? The, the Ten Commandments only codified the law. Paul says the law of man is written upon where? Man's heart. So people can't say, well, I didn't know, what, I didn't know thou shalt not kill because Moses wasn't around yet. No, every man did that. And so God's asking people to rely upon their own conscience. And again, they fail and they fail miserably. So God brings judgment. He brings a flood. So we move into the next dispensation. God says, okay, since you can't follow your own conscience, we're going to have government, and government will punish evildoers. And so therefore, if a man takes a man's life, his, man, his life shall be taken. And even in an animal, if an animal takes a man's life, and then you won't eat of the blood of that, all that stuff. And so God gives those commandments to Noah and, and starts about how you need to start enforcing these things on one another. And of course, man messes that up. And so we come to the Tower of Babel, and God's judgment is to confound the languages and to scatter the people. And we'll talk about that in detail. Then we move into the next dispensation where Adam, God says, Hey, Abraham, I'm going to give to you a promise. I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to be a shining light to the world of how life should be. And, and those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And so there's a whole bunch of promises. And the greatest promise given to Abraham was that out of you, I'm going to bring up a king who will be a blessing to the whole world. And of course, we know that to be Christ. And of course, Abraham and his people of Israel, they fail to be the light in the world. So they end up going down into Egypt and they're in bondage. And that's their judgment. Notice, God gives responsibility. Man fails. There's judgment. God gives a new set of responsibilities. So then God raises up Moses. Notice in every era, God raises someone up. 
And even that someone fails. So there's Moses, and Moses gives the law. And so since, since you can't follow your conscience, since you can't govern one another, since you can't be a light to the nations, follow these laws. And again, they fail. And so Christ, who fulfilled the law, took our punishment of breaking the law upon himself on the cross. And so that's the judgment there. Christ takes the judgment. So now we live in the dispensation of grace, or it's also known as the, the church age which the church is now spreading the gospel to the whole world. And of course, the test is, will we be obedient with that? And the response is, not only are we supposed to spread the gospel, the lost are supposed to believe the gospel. And of course, God, at the end of this dispensation, will bring a tribulation. How long will that tribulation be? Seven years of tribulation where God will pour out his wrath on this earth. If you're a believer in Christ, you will not be here because God has already poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. So therefore, you'll be saved from that wrath that is to come. And God will pour his wrath on this planet. And then he will usher in the next dispensation, the last dispensation, which is the kingdom. How long is the kingdom rule? It's 1,000 years. So here we have approximately 7,000 years of history. And, and, of course, that one will end with the great white throne where God will judge all the lost, and then we'll move into etern the eternal state. So anyway, that's a little bit of review to kind of get you where we're at. We're moving, we've gone through the first three dispensations. We're, we're going to be talking about how God ends this dispensation with the judgment of languages. Something I do every now and then is I, I ask a few people, some within the church and some outside the church to give me constructive feedback on the messages so that I'm always trying to stay sharp. And recently, my son, Adrian, who's up in Arkansas, gave me some really helpful feedback and something that I actually wanted to share with you that would help us to apply it. And here, I'm just going, rather than just telling you what, paraphrasing what he said, I thought I'd just read you what he said. He said, I like the references back to the garden. I think from a literature perspective, plot development and suspense, the narrative keeps building the perspective of redeemers. Like someone's going to come along and redeem the people, but they fail. That's what he's talking about. And he says, you know, will this be the one? Who will get us back to the garden? Will it be Cain, Noah, uh, Moses? And even Moses glowed with God's glory after going where heaven meets earth. All of them spectacularly fail all those previous men, similar to what you alluded to with the dispensations. It'll take God himself coming down to man as the perfect man. The only thing you might consider adding, this was his suggestion for my sermon, it was really good, so I just thought I'd read it to you, is how knowing this helps me worship God passionately and love people genuinely, which if you're new to revolution, that's part of our church mission statement. It's obvious that God takes sin seriously, the flood, the cross of Christ, and it's just as serious about being the sole object of your worship. Are you serious about addressing your own sin to repentance? What evidence is there that you do? God was gracious to save humanity physically with the ark and spiritually with the cross. Do you extend the same grace and mercy to others even when they sin against you? I thought that was some good wise counsel there. And so that will be part of our application as we continue. So I'm taking this long passage, and I'm dividing it into three sections this morning. We'll move through them quickly. Number one, there's the drunkenness of Noah. Number two, the dispersing of the nations. And number three, the defiance at Babel. Drunkenness, dispersing, and defiance. Let's start with the drunkenness of Noah. Up until this point, there's no mention of Noah sinning. Now, we know he was a sinner, but the Bible doesn't record any of it. But now when he sins, he sins in a major way. It says the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were three, okay? We think that Noah probably had other sons, but the Bible only mentions these three, and these three were the only ones on the ark. But it keeps repeating this phrase, Ham was the father of Canaan. And he wants you to see something there, because who's writing this story? Moses is. And who's Moses is one of his biggest enemies? The Canaanites. And he's letting you know where all this trouble started from. You know, my entire life, and for most of you, there's always been trouble in the Middle East, Israel and all the Arab nations. And it has been that way for thousands of years, and it all goes back to the Bible. Now, Jimmy Carter was not a very good president, as you know. <laughs> he got, uh, he, when he got defeated as an incumbent president, he got trounced because he was doing such a horrible job. But one thing Jimmy Carter actually did get right, because he understood the Bible, he knew the problem in the Middle East was because of Jacob and Esau, that whole split right there. And he knew that this was a historical problem, and he actually got some peace accomplished temporarily in the Middle East because of his understanding there. 
But all the world's problems go back to what the Bible says they are, that when man disobeys, we suffer consequences. But that part right there about Ham was the father of Canaan. That's super important. We'll come back to it here in a minute. He says, from these people were the whole earth dispersed. And archaeologists will even confirm, and even DNA confirms, we come back from three basic clans, if you will. And then it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil. I don't want to read too much into this, but I think Noah was not a farmer before the flood. I think he had some type of industry. Maybe he was a carpenter. Maybe he was a tanner. Maybe he was a silversmith. I don't know. But I think he had to pick up a new vocation. Why? Because he has no customers. <laughs> There's nobody in the world to buy from him right now in his shop. So he says, well, I'm going to have to start farming. And included with this farm, he's going to have a vineyard. Not uncommon to have several different things going. And in that part of the world, you'd have typically two vineyards, a grape vineyard and an olive vineyard. Those were the two common vineyards. And then you'd farm other things as well. But he planted a vineyard. And of course, he, you know, a lot of time is passing. Sometimes it takes six or seven years for a vineyard to actually produce good grapes, and especially grapes worthy of making wine. So this is not something, as soon as he got out of the ark, boom, plant a vineyard next year, boom, he's drunk. It's not happening quite that fast. But what he did was he drank of the wine, and he became drunk. And that's where the sin lies. And every time I touch this, I have to repeat this so you know where I stand, but also so you know where I want you to stand. The Bible does not forbid drinking wine. I purposely do not drink wine at all, except for in communion, when we, if we offer that as an option. And that, for me, that's a big deal because my, of my five aunts and uncles on my mom's side, all of them died alcohol-related deaths, except for my mom, who died of emphysema because of smoking. So bad habits killed off all my mom's side. And I saw drunkenness all over my family all the time. It was nothing for my relatives to come over and visit, come sober, but leave drunk. And get in accidents on the way home. And how they didn't kill themselves or anybody else drunk driving on the way home. But back then, it was so weird. It's just like our culture was so dumb. Drunk driving was so normal. We, people just laughed about it. Now it's a big deal, which thankfully, it's good. We're, it took us a couple hundred years to finally catch up with it. But it, it's funny how that works. But I don't even want to begin to start because in my DNA, there's the propensity, like one out of every eight people, you have a tendency towards alcoholism. And some people, it just takes a couple of drinks and you're already hooked. So I really caution people against drinking. I think total absence is a great way to go, but I cannot say from the Bible, you, that's what you have to do. But it, we do see over and over and over and over again in the Bible where drinking leads to big problems. And this is what happens to Moses, uh, Noah here. He became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. Now, we don't know why, okay? And the Bible doesn't tell us why. A lot of people will take a lot of speculation here to say he's doing something immoral. We don't know. Maybe it's just hot. He lives in a desert climate, you know, and maybe he's cooling off. It's his tent. He's in the privacy there. He's passed out drunk, though. For whatever reason, he's, he's laying naked in his, uh, in his own tent. But when we talk about drunkenness, the Bible does forbid drunkenness. It doesn't forbid drinking, but it does forbid drunkenness. But again, my caution to you is, why would you want to start? The Bible doesn't forbid debt, but it does say, be super careful with it, and too much debt is foolish. So we wouldn't make fun of someone who was debt-free, right? We would say, hey, that's a good thing, okay? And so it, we shouldn't say, well, someone who does not drink at all, that's bad. No, that's pretty smart, actually. Um, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Debauchery means when you are giving in to what makes your flesh feel good. What makes your flesh feel good. And of course, the alternative is be filled with the Spirit. What's interesting about that is when people drink, how do they act? They act without inhibition. They all of a sudden have this courage they didn't have before. They're acting differently. They talk differently. They behave differently. And the Bible's saying there's a parallel there with being filled with the Spirit instead of being filled with wine. When, here you're acting differently, you're talking differently, you're different inhibitions and all that, but they're all going towards the bad. But here someone with the filling of the Spirit is talking differently in a good way, behaving differently in a good way, less inhibited, less shy, more outspoken about the gospel and all those things. And you will see someone who is filled with the Spirit of God as being changed and becoming that new creature in Christ. And not just saying, well, that's the way I am. I'll never change. You, you actually see change brought about in a good way. 
Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, wine is a mocker. When you mock somebody, what do you do? Try to make them look stupid. And how do people look when they drink? They, They look stupid. They say things they wish hadn't said. And sometimes they don't even remember what they said. You know, and it says, and strong drink is a brawler. Now, the Bible does not forbid the drink of wine, but the Bible does say strong drink is something you should totally stay away from. So whiskey, vodka, all that stuff, I don't even know why you'd want, because that, that stuff is made with the only intention of getting a buzz, period. You know, you could say, I drink a half a glass of wine just to kind of relax. Okay, that's between you and God. But you start drinking the hard stuff what the Bible calls strong drink, there's no other purpose but then a mind-altered state, which I would say would be totally wrong. And it says, and whosoever is led astray is not wise. You see, when you're led astray, you're being deceived and, hey, come over here. This is a good thing over here, you know? And then guess what? You're being deceived. You're not being wise. We need to learn from the, the, the failure here of, of Noah. You see, Adam in the garden, this is a hyperlink back to the garden, Adam partook of the forbidden fruit. But here, Noah partook of the fruit in a forbidden way. Grapes are good, okay? But abusing alcohol is not good. So before the flood, Noah was a righteous man in a drunken world. And after the flood, now, now he's a drunk in a righteous world. See the irony there? See the twist that Moses is showing us? In Ezekiel 14, it still refers to some of, three of the greatest guys of the Old Testament, Noah, Daniel, and Job, that these three guys were very righteous. So Noah wasn't a complete failure because of this, thank God. How many, well, don't raise your hands, but all of us have failed in a big way somewhere in our life, right? But it does not mean that God is not done with us. So Ham, the father of Canaan, there's that phrase again. It says he saw the nakedness of his father. Now the word saw here is is not just visually to observe, but is to see and take delight in. He's like, look at dad. (laughs) What a drunk loser. You know, he's like getting a kick out of this. I don't think this is a, a sexual thing. Some people will try to teach that. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think, let the context say what's going on here. He saw it. He got a kick out of it. He thought it was funny. He was laughing about it. And what does he do? He tells you how he takes this, how he expresses what he saw. He goes and he tells his brothers outside, hey guys, look at dad. Dad's in there drunk and knocked out and naked on there. And he's just trying to take delight in making fun or mocking his dad. And of course, that's totally disrespectful. And we don't see where the other two brothers go along with this evil disrespect at all. In fact, it says Shem and Japheth took a garment, okay? And this again is hyperlinked back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned and guess what? They realized they were naked, and God slew an animal and covered them with a garment. See that, that connection there? And so now Shem and Japheth, rather than mocking and delighting in their dad's sin, they're going to help cover their dad's sin. So they pick up a robe. It wasn't Noah's because Noah's clothes are in there. They pick up one of theirs. So somebody else's robe of righteousness, see the track there? They, each guy puts it on their shoulder, and they walk backwards into the tent, and when they kind of see their dad's feet, they lay this down like that, and they don't see their dad's nakedness. So right there, because they're going to such lengths not to see that, it tells us what Ham did. He saw and made fun of his dad's nakedness. They're doing the exact opposite. They're trying not to see and totally respect their dad. So to take this passage and go somewhere else with it, I think is unhealthy. I, I um, was studying this week, and I actually came across a couple of teachers and theologians who actually thought, and there's, there's some, if you, what am I trying to say here? There's some evidence it could be this, but I think they're taking it too far. That they actually think that Ham did something sexual with his dad and or that he did something sexual with Mrs. Noah. Because in Leviticus 18, it says if a, if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he is uncovering his nakedness. That same phrase is used there. So I could see why they'd make a case for that. But again, the total understanding of the Bible comes back to one main thing, context, context, context. I teach you that all the time. What is the immediate context in this passage? Do you see anything that Ham did that says it could go there? In fact, you see within the context, Shem, Shem and Japheth going to great lengths not to see at all what their dad's nakedness was. And that was what Ham didn't do. So let's just leave it at that. Let the context interpret it for us. But this brings up something interesting. And that's the issue of modesty. You can say, wow, they were really hypersensitive about modesty. 
Were they? Is it not? Maybe is it maybe a healthy thing that nobody sees you, your nakedness except for your spouse? I mean, you can go with the whole locker room mentality if you want, but is, is that really healthy? I don't know. I just know that our, our country right now and our world is very immodest. I don't know if you read recently Spotify, which if you use that for music, be careful because they deliberately dumped porn on their sites. 10 and 11-year-olds were scrolling, looking for their favorite song, and guess what was coming up? Graphic images that they had total control over. It's being pushed upon your kids. The average age of children for the first time seeing pornography is age 11. Our culture is trying to breed kids. That's why they're talking about transgenderism and LGBT stuff in first, second, third, and even kindergarten. They're talking about this stuff right here because they're trying to steal your kid's modesty. You can look at this and say, oh, wow, then those are old fogies. Hey, I would rather be like them and not want to see anybody naked except my spouse. And I think that's probably the safest way to go. But that's the lesson here is about the modesty. And this all started with what? Noah's drunkenness. Now, when Noah was drinking too much, He's probably thinking, this is my own private sin. This is my own thing. It's between me and God. I'll say I'm sorry for it later. But look how sin can ravel in a way that you didn't expect it to go. Anytime you do something, you think nobody sees what I'm doing. Nobody's going to know. I'm just hurting my own self. There's no other victim. You never know where that, that sin is going to lead for other people, especially, especially for your children. It, the Bible says, not the Bible says, a pr- good principle to lean on is, Whatever you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. So there's some things you may never want to even start because of where your kids might take it. Um, It says that they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So the emphasis is is telling you what Ham did by expressing the opposite. And I think that's where we should just leave it with that. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. This is where people say, see, it didn't say he knew what his youngest son saw. It says nobody done him. Well, what had he done? He saw him, but then he went outside and he mocked him to his brothers. That's what he had done. And he disrespected it. So it could be a done and not just a saw. And he said, cursed be Canaan, which is really interesting because Canaan is his son. And so, but he's saying basically because of your sin, your children, your descendants are going to pay for it. And your, your descendants are going to be a slave slave, if you will. They're going to serve other people. They'll be the lower rung of society. And he also, at that same time, said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And so what this looks like is, it looks like a, you know how in the the Old Testament, when dads were about to pass away, they'd pronounce a blessing on all their kids. And you see that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, pronouncing blessings. This resembles that. So is Noah dying here? Maybe so, because he decides to just not only go in, and a blessing on your kids wasn't always a positive thing. It was usually a pronouncement is what it was. And if your kid had been bad, you might pronounce a curse on them and just say, hey, from now on, you're going to suffer in this way, which, what he, which is what he says about Ham and his descendants. But he decides to take this as an opportunity to pronounce a blessing upon Shem. And then he says, and may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant also, if you will. So after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. You know, what this should teach all of us is we should want to finish strong. It's kind of sad that Noah was so faithful that he was a preacher of righteousness, that he preached repentance for 120 years, at the same time building an amazing uh, vessel that would survive a cataclysmic worldwide flood, that he took care of animals and family. He did all that faithfully, faithfully, faithfully for so many years, only to let the last thing that we know about him was he got drunk. You know, I don't know whether you're 15 or 55 or 75, your goal in life is to finish the race like the Apostle Paul said, finish strong. Just keep your eyes on the prize and don't let anything, even your late years of life, detract you from serving God. The second thing we see is a dispersing of nations. And again, I mentioned it. Chapter 10 was what's called the table of nations. There's 70 nations after Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Those three would make 73, but 70 mentioned after that. And of course, you know, in the Bible, 70 is a very significant number. You see that over and over again. There was 70 people that went down into Egypt. Technically, there was 69, and they counted God the Father as part of the family. So they counted it. That's why they would say 70. And then 
Moses raised up how many elders? 70 elders. And then Abraham's descendants were divided into 70. Then when they, went, when they were in the captivity there for 70 years, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Septu meaning the Latin for 70, because there were 70 translators involved in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Daniel's prophecy is about the whole future coming in all the kingdoms. It's called Daniel's 70 weeks. And of course, Jesus said to forgive how many times? 70 times 7. So you see the number 70 is super significant. And that's how many nations come out of the three sons of Noah. So these table of nations, if you were to look on a chart, and again, I don't expect you to read this, but this is how it would break down. And what's fascinating about this is this is a table of Josephus. Josephus recorded history for the Roman Empire. And you know what he used as his tool to, to uh, describe and to delineate where all the nations were that the Roman Empire ruled over? He used Genesis chapter 10 to make his table of nations. He, Josephus, a paid Roman historian, thought the Bible was so reliable that he used it as his foundation for it. And the Bible is so clear on history, on science, that the table of nations, get this, is the most comprehensive anthropological formation of man's migration anywhere on the planet. No other civilization in the world records the, the, the migration of man as accurately as the Bible does. Now, it doesn't mean that every people group is mentioned on this. It only mentions the most important, the 70, okay? Others are descendants from this. But it shows that the Bible is biblically accurate. In fact, um, this is the way you could see where they spread. You could see Shem, the Shemites, which is where we get the word Semitic or anti-Semitic. If you're, the Jews and others like them, they stayed in the Middle East. Ham's moved different parts on the coast there and northern uh, coast of Africa. Japheth, they went towards the east and towards the far west of Europe, all around the kind of the horn there. And so the table of nations in Genesis 10 is the most comprehensive explanation of human migration of any document in all of ancient literature. In fact, Richard P. Ashman, if you really want to geek out on this stuff, you want to do a little research, look up Richard P. Ashman. He has done research on human DNA and Y chromosome studies and has shown where every uh, ethnicity on the planet, especially in that part of the world, can be traced back to Ham, Shem, and Japheth. It's, it's amazing how biblically and historically accurate all this is. Evolutionists, though, would teach you the opposite. They believe that ethnic diversity in the world came about by random occurrence and that some races, and this is right from the words of Charles Darwin, have evolved more than others, Okay. And Darwin thought that whites, Caucasians were the highest, Asians were second, Hispanics and blacks last. Germany, Nazi Germany, took that and said, no, we can go one farther. Caucasian, especially the Aryan race, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, were the most superior evolved because they believed in evolution. Asians, Hispanics, blacks, then Jews. And he thought he'd be doing selection of the survival of the fittest and natural selection in favor by exterminating the Jewish race. And you see, evolution always leads to racism. In fact, how many races are there? There's only one, according to the Bible. There's the human race. The Bible uses the Greek word ethnos, that there's different ethnicities that God designed. They didn't come about by random chance of evolution. They were designed by God. And there's one human race that's all equal. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible demonstrates that the beautiful diversity of ethnicity are all by God's design and that we are all equal. And you, you see, evolutionists can't have their cake and eat it too. They want to preach social justice, but at the same time say we came from monkeys and some of us evolved more than others. How has that even come close to enforcing justice anywhere in the world? The Bible makes it clear that the, the true justice comes from the word. Acts 17.25 says, He himself, talking about God, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If, so if you're alive today because of God, say amen. We're all, and it says, And he made... From one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That was his intention. And having determined, God predetermined and allotted now the periods, the time periods in which you live, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God has chosen where Asians would live, where blacks would live, where Caucasians would live, all that stuff, and where we would spread out and how we would mix and mingle and all those things. God was in total control of that and even where you would live and where you'd be born and everything like that. And guess what? In heaven, you will still be what you are because it's beautiful. That, the Bible says, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll get to it in a second. So 
it says that they, and God has put everybody in their time period and in their geographical location, period boundaries, for one purpose, that you would seek God. So you say, well, how do, what about those who are in this part of the world? How are they going to hear the gospel? God says, I put them there for a very reason, to, so that they could seek me. In fact, it says, and perhaps they would feel their way toward him, God, and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God's not playing hide and go seek. God is very easy to find. He is not far from any one of us. He's very close. And God has designed the ethnic races or ethnicities around the world by his design. It's not random chance. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says, Worthy are you, talking about Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Someday when we all stand around the throne, guess what? We will still all be the same color and ethnicity and language we are, but we'll be able to understand each other. And the beauty of all that mosaic will be around the throne of God. We're not going to all become homogenous. We're not going to all turn purple or be one thing. We're all going to keep our uniqueness that God created with. So God created ethnic groups in a beautiful way in the beginning, and he continues it even in eternity around the throne. So God has proven that he is in control of all history, and he's directing the course of human events. You look at these seven dispensations, you look at the dispersing of ethnic groups around the planet, God is in total control of all of that. Do we believe that? Do we look at this big map and say, wow, God really does steer all this? Then here's the application. Will you trust him to control all of your life and direct your plans and decisions? Say, yeah, God can do that worldwide, but I kind of need to make sure these things happen for me. Now, will you yield and give God total control? So we talked about the drunkenness of Noah. And then the dispersing of the nations in chapter 10. And now we're going to come to the defiance at Babel. The defiance at Babel. So now the whole earth had one language and the same words. You say, that's like redundant. No, it's not. In England, what, what language do they speak? English, thank you. What language do we speak? English, don't say American, thank you. Okay, so we speak the same language, but do we have the same words? No. In England, a biscuit is something totally different than a biscuit here. Chips in England are something totally different than chips here. I mean, they use different words, even though they're speaking the same language. But what the Bible's saying here is the whole earth not only had one language, they had the same vocabulary. The words meant the same thing. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And the, the word Shinar means two rivers. Two rivers. What do you think those two rivers were? Anybody have a guess? Tigris and Euphrates, good. What started with Tigris and Euphrates? The Garden of Eden. So God says, hey, I want you to go away from the garden and spread out all over the world. And what are they doing here? No, we're going back to the garden. The garden that we're forbidden, the garden where the, the two angels were holding up flaming swords saying, you can't come back in here. They're like, no, we're going back. And we're going to, we'll set up, if God won't let us in the garden, we're going to set up our own place of worship. And they settled there. God's saying, hey, fill the world. And they're saying, no, no, we're going to settle. And there's reasons, even, and we could go through a lot of reasons why God would want to spread the world. First of all, he made it to be populated. But number two, by spreading out, what if a pandemic hits them when they're all at the Tower of Babel? Everybody's wiped out. Whereas if they spread out, then you have a chance for diseases and things like that to die. Not to mention all the other reasons that cities could be bad. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Now, this is a new technology. It sounds like just plain old mud bricks, but this is, this is a high technology. We'll talk about it in a second. And so now, up until this point, they had been using stone and mortar to build things. But now they've got this new technology called a brick, which they can shape perfectly and keep them level so they could build higher. When you're building with stone, you can only go so high before the uneven stones want to tumble down. So instead of stones, they now have a, a more high-tech substitute called the brick. And instead of mortar, they now have a bitumen. And so bitumen is not as simple as it sounds. It's a distilled from crude oil. So they're going through a, a refining process to make this. Prior to that, they just used straight tar, but now they can make asphalt by mixing it with sand and all kinds of great things there. So they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Like, we don't need God to get to heaven. We're going to work our way there. Sound familiar? That's what all the religions of the world do. 
I'll be a good person. I'll obey the Ten Commandments. I'll, I'll follow the teachings of Muhammad in the Quran, or I'll follow the wisdom of Buddha, and I am going to do this. I'm going to work my way up to heaven. And God says, uh-uh. It, it does not work that way. And there's cultures from all around the world have their own renditions of what the Tower of Babel might have looked like. This is from the Assyrian culture, not even a biblical culture, but they have stories of this very thing. Um, and again, this might be optimistic. I don't know, but it, it shows it like in the clouds because it's reaching so high. And then he said, let us make a name for who? For ourselves. What is the whole purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But here they're like, no, we're going to show how great we are. We don't care what God said. God said, go around the world and populate the world. No, no, we're going back towards the garden. God said, you know, to spread out and to glorify him. No, we're just going to glorify ourselves. And even they even say right there, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. God was trying to disperse mankind. They're like, no, no, we don't want to be dispersed. We want to do what we want to do. And this, this language here is humorous. So they're building this tower up to heaven and it doesn't say, and so the God moved over to look at the top of the tower. God says, oh, let me climb way downstairs and look, see what the kids are doing. It says right there, what the children of man had built. It's like your kids are downstairs and they're building Legos. And they're, they're, they're impressed that they've got it 24 inches high. And we're going to build our way up to the greatest thing. And, and mom and dad say, hey, let's go downstairs and see what the kids are up to. That, God is mocking them and saying, you, you think your building is so big, it's nothing but a little Lego device that I could just knock over. And so the Lord said, behold, they are one people, okay? I'm trying to disperse them. They're trying to stay together, which isn't always a bad thing. It just depends what your intent is. And they have one language. There's no limits to their communication. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, not for good, but for evil. Nothing they purpose, because previously, what was every man's thought? Evil. And so there's nothing they will do now that will be impossible for evil, you look at today what we're doing. We have the internet. Something that could be used to spread the gospel worldwide. You could do great things like GoFundMe. Like someone could have cancer and they need $80,000 to get treatment. And strangers from all over the world can send them money and they can go get that done. That's a great thing. And wouldn't it be awesome if the only thing we were doing with the internet was good things? But the overwhelming majority of stuff that's happening on the internet is not good things. Did you know you can go online now and you can look through digital catalogs and buy children? Anywhere in the world, you can just order a child. It'll be, that child will be shipped to you to become a sex slave and for you to put into sex trafficking. It's done all over the world. And you've seen that recently in our news. Like, and Hollywood's incredibly silent about it, about all this child pornography and stuff that's happening. But it is engrossed in our culture and a big part of our, even our U.S. government is involved in it. And that's why the whole Epstein thing, you know, that's why he mysteriously killed himself once again, somebody else. And our, our planet is not just obsessed with sex. It's now sex with children. And you say, Gary, why are you talking about this on Sunday morning? Because this is the culture you're in. It is becoming pushed on us and pushed on us and pushed on us. And you say, man, there's nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible. There's no end to the, the wickedness of man's imagination of what he can do with technology. They're already using things like with science, they, they're already implanting human brain cells in rats, and it's working, and these animals are starting to think different. And so how many human brain cells does a rat need before it becomes a person and not an animal? And you know what's crazy is you talk about transgenderism. You know what the next thing is? And just mark my words, in six months you'll be hearing about this, is transhumanism. That robots and other things like that will be now be given human rights. Okay, just look up some of the TED Talks about it. This is what they're talking about, and this is not what I'm talking about. I'm not being a paranoid, um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to use for, a conspiracy theorist. I'm just telling you, this is the way our world's going. And God looked down and saw this and said, I need to do something about this. So mankind being united for the glory of God leads to righteousness, but mankind being united for his own glory leads to evil. And this is where the Tower of Babel was taking them. So God says, let us, who is us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us go down. <laughs> that tower is so tiny, we need to go down to it. He's using mockery language. And there, let's confuse, which means to disperse or, or, or shatter into a thousand pieces their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And by pulling the plug on their communication, pulled the plug on the construction project. So the Lord dispersed them there from over, face of all the earth, exactly thing they did not want to do. 
and they left off building the city, so there it was unfinished. Therefore, its name was called Babel, which would be, I say Babel, but the proper Hebrew pronunciation is Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. In Hebrew, it means confusion. What's interesting is this is a play on words. In the, the language of that day, Akkadian, Babili meant the gate of God. So when they called the tower in the city Babel, Babili, the gate of God. So you, you, you want to call it the gate of God? I'm going to call it confusion. And so he's, he's mocking them again by calling it Babel instead of Babili. And it's another play on words there when he retranslates it into Hebrew. So what's interesting about this is the New Testament alludes back to the Tower of Babel at Pentecost, where things are reversed. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak out. And when this sound occurred, the rushing wind, the crowd gathered, it was in confusion. Sound familiar? God confused the languages here, but God now makes the languages understood by everybody. And the people are confused, not in a bad way, but in a good way. Like, wait a minute, how is everybody understanding each other with this miracle of tongues? And because each one was hearing them speaking in their own language. The the gift of tongues is a two-way miracle. Some people, it's the, the, the miracles in the hearing. I'm, I'm, I don't understand a word of Italian, yet you're speaking Italian, and I'm totally understanding what you're saying. And other people are like, I've never spoke Chinese before in my life, and now I'm speaking Chinese. It was a two-way miracle, and it, the confusion was not in a bad way. But like, wow, how is this happening? In verse 9, it's uh, back to Genesis. It says, therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all. And from there, the Lord dispersed them from from all over the face of the earth. So their goal was, let's stay here, lest we be dispersed. And God says, no, my will will be done. And here's the big thing. God's will will be done with or without you. It's like we're all on the ship, okay? And the ship is going across the Atlantic, and it's going to make it to London, okay? You can fight and kick and scream the whole way and try to rearrange the the deck chairs, or do whatever you want to do, or hide, or whatever, but it's going in that direction. So you can go along with it as an obedient passenger who is working and doing his part, or you can fight it the whole way, but God's will will be done ultimately in the end. And that's what he shows them here. You see, Christians are commanded in the same way to go into all the world, just like he told Adam and Eve, go into all the world, be fruitful, multiply. He told Noah and them, go on all the world and be fruitful, multiply. He told them at the Tower of Babel, and of course, man's inclination is always to rebel. No, I'm going to stay here and do what I want to do. And we're supposed to be fruitful, multiply, not just in giving life biologically, but by giving new life through the gospel. In Mark 16, 15, he says to them, the, the disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his, talking about Stephen's execution, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions. You say, okay, what is that about? God told, told them in Mark 16, go out in all the world and preach the gospel. And you know what they did there? They made a megachurch. You know, first church of Jerusalem ran in about 15,000. And they didn't disperse. And God says, okay, if you're not going to disperse, I'm going to send persecution and I will scatter you. And that's exactly what he did. They sent persecution. So persecution, God doesn't always use this way, but sometimes persecution is the best thing that can happen for Christianity. You look at what's happening in China right now. I don't know if you're following the news. I'm sure most news outlets are not covering this very heavily. But there, you remember Tiananmen Square? 1989, the tank and that one protester. And as a result of that protest, 2,700 Chinese people at least died in that protest as the communist government cracked down on people just protesting for freedom. What's happening in China right now is 10 times as big as Tiananmen Square, and you probably won't hear about it. So they are basically making slaves of certain ethnic groups of Chinese because Chinese have different ethnic groups within. They're not, not everybody's just Chinese. Okay, there's the Mongs, there's the Mandarins, there's the Cantonese, all different groups within China. And some are being subjected into a caste system. And basically, they are building multi-level buildings where on the ground floor you work, on the second floor you eat, on the third floor is like maybe entertainment and where you can go play games, on the fourth floor is where everybody lives. And because of COVID... They're telling people you can't travel, and what they're doing at night is they're bolting people in 
to these complexes and said, you can only move within the four floors. Of that. And there was a company called Foxconn, which is controlled by the communist government. It was bolting people in there thinking people were saying, hey, we want out, we want out, we want to be free. And they're like, no, you're staying in here because of COVID. And then there was a big apartment fire where thousands of these Chinese people lived. And guess what happened? They're all bolted in and they all died. So the Chinese started protesting, saying, hey, you can't keep locking us in like that. And so Chinese people were jumping barbed wire fences trying to escape. And they're using their smartphones. Of course, they're being tracked. And they're telling everybody, hey, we're going to try to rally here and have a protest here. And of course, they all of a sudden get picked up and they disappear because they're, trans- they're doing all this. So the Chinese figured out the best way to spread the word is airdrop. Because I could post it on their equivalent of Facebook or some type of social media, but the Chinese government will pick that up. But if I airdrop the information to you, if we're within the same 100 feet, then you can get the information and the Chinese government won't know about it. So guess what Apple did? They turned off the airdrop option because the, chi- the communist Chinese government, who's persecuting other people, asked Apple to do it, and Apple did. Isn't that evil? American company Apple, for the dollars, is listening to the communist Chinese people, so they, the co- government, so they can kill more people. This is the kind of stuff that's going on in our world today. But guess what? Because of persecution in China, which I'm not happy about, the church is growing faster in China than anywhere on the planet. Did you know that there are more born-again Christians in China than there is the population of the United States? There's over 350 million people of the 1.3 billion people in China are claimed to be Christian. Look what persecution is doing. And guess what? It may be coming here. And God's saying, look, if you won't go into the world and spread the gospel, I'm going to put you in a situation where you have to go into the world and spread the gospel. So it says, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. So defiance marks the condition of the human heart. That's us. We don't want to be told what to do. We, don't, we say, it's my life. All of our songs reinforce that. We're going to do what we want to do. And we look at human history over and over again. The pattern is God says, hey, would you do this? And you'll be blessed. And we're like, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. Okay, well, then here's your consequences. Let's start over. Do this and you'll be blessed. No, I want to do what I want to do. Well, okay, here's your consequences over and over and over again. I want you to watch the three words that describe us here in Romans chapter 5. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Just in the same chapter. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Look at this next verse. For if while we were what? Enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Ungodly sinners and enemies. That's how human beings are described. This is not the type of preaching that fills churches with thousands. Everybody wants to hear positive things saying, you're great, you're special. But the truth is, we're all ungodly sinners and enemies of God. The bad news is you're more sinful than you realize. You really are. I am. We all are. But the good news is you are more loved than you could ever imagine. Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ died for Adam and Eve when they rebelled against him in the garden. Jesus died for Cain when he killed his brother. Jesus died for Noah when he got drunk. Jesus died for all those millions of people at the Tower of Babel. Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You are more loved than you could possibly ever imagine. The cure to the human defiance is to surrender. The international symbol for surrender is a white flag. And really what Jesus is asking you to do is surrender. To raise the white flag and say, Lord, I'm not going to control my own life anymore. I've messed it up enough. I give my life to you. You gave your life to me. I surrender. Will you do that this morning? I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes if you would. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you remember when you lifted that white flag of surrender and you gave your life to Christ, why not not take a moment to thank the Lord for that? But also, why not pray that maybe if there's someone in this room today who's never surrendered their life to Christ, someone watching online, whoever may be, would you pray that the Holy Spirit of God would lift the blinders off their eyes, that that they would receive Christ? If that would describe you this morning, I, I wanted you to Stop fighting against God. 
You say, well, Gary, I'm not. I'm just doing my own thing. That's, that's what it is. That's what they were doing at the Tower of Babel. They were doing their own thing. Why not give your life to Christ? He died for all of your sins. He buried them all in his tomb. And he rose again with life eternal for all who would trust him. Would you trust him right here and now today? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that what we're reading today is not just fables and legends. It's, it's history. It actually happens. We can trace our human roots back to all these events that happened. And Lord, even though the world wants to reject it and they want to come up with their own theories, we know that the word of God stands true and it is settled in heaven forever. Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die for us. And we praise you in his name. And all God's people said, amen. If, if you did make a decision or you want to know more about Christ to, to make that decision, here's my cell phone number. Please call or text me anytime and we'll have a conversation about that. And if you know someone in your life that you maybe you work with, maybe some of you live near and you think they would benefit from hearing about Genesis and all we're learning, invite them to join you, pray for them and talk to God about them that they would join you in church some Sunday. And if you have fallen behind on the Bible reading plan, just catch up. It's a good reading plan. It's amazing how it's fitting out so well. So get caught up on that. And uh, if you haven't joined, you still can. Just look it up on version. It's called Origins. It's a great day-by-day study of the book of Genesis. All right, we're going to do question and answer time. Oh, there. Okay, come on, Heather. So if you have a question, welcome, Heather. If you have a question, there's my cell phone number. Text it right now. You could also um, raise your hand and ask it um, uh, in person, if you'd rather do that. Oh, I got it. And as of right now, I don't have any questions. If you're, if you're texting, go ahead and push send if you haven't sent that already. <laughs> Here, I'll let you watch this. Um, we did have a question a couple weeks ago that I didn't get to because we had like nine questions come in and I didn't get to all of them. But one of them was about, is tithing under the Old Testament? And that's a great question. There's a lot of Bible teachers who believe that it is. I, I'm not one of them. Uh, well, I should say, I don't think tithing is under the Old Testament only. If it was only an Old Testament command and not repeated in the New Testament, I could see why, okay, now it's just grace giving. And if that's true, then if God expects under law 10%, what does he expect under grace? I would say much more. But the reason I say it's not just under law is because Abraham, way before Moses, paid tithes to Melchizedek. And you just see it. He did it. like That's a normal thing to do. He was blessed with an abundant uh, plunder when he defeated the nations of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he had a windfall of profit, he tithed off of it. And so you saw him doing that like it was just a normal thing to do. And you see animal sacrifices way before the law. Sacrificing, of course, people didn't trade currency. They traded in animals. So giving something to God out of the first of your flock was just a normal thing. And of course, Jesus in the New Testament says to the Pharisees, you tithe off of mint and cumin and all these other spices these things you should have done, but you've left out the weightier matters of the law. More important than tithing, which you should do, is justice and mercy towards your neighbor. And you've left that out. So Jesus endorses tithing, but says, hey, that's just the beginning. You need to do this. And some people say, well, no, it was part of the um, theocracy under the Israeli government. No, there was, a, there was, there was three tithes. There was a tithe, the religious tithe, which Abraham did, and you still did to the tabernacle. There was the governmental tithe that supported the government 10%. And then there was the, every third year that where you tithe to support the, the welfare system that the government enforced. So that was 23 and a third. And so people say, well, if you believe in tithe, you need to do 23 and a third. Well, we're not under theocracy. I pay 10% to God. I pay way too much to the American government and all that stuff. So I'm still the same thing. Anyway, but good people disagree on that. I would say if you don't believe in tithing, you, do, you should under grace, do much more than what the law requires because we live above the law, not below it. Is there any other questions come in? Yes. Okay, good. In the Bible, when it talks about Jesus, where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess his name, is there any context that refers to all people, even unbelievers, or is this just referring to those who believe? Yeah, we just, it is referring to all believers, to answer the question. We just sung that in the song, right? Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, Jesus, right? Center of it all. We all sing that again? No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, I believe it's, it, it's a general principle, but specifically it's referring to the great white throne of judgment. And that's where every knee shall bow, whether you want to or not. That's the thing. So, you know, Adolf Hitler, 
Donald Trump, Joe Biden, all of them, they're all going to bow before Jesus Christ. Okay? So you can do it in this life willingly, or you can be forced to then, but you will bow. And at the great white throne, they'll bow and confess him as Lord before they're sentenced to eternity without him. Because that's when God says, because in our life, we're supposed to say, not my will, but yours be done. But if we don't do that, then God says, okay, not my will, but yours be done. You wanted life without me? Here you go. Have eternity without me. And so, yes, I think it's a reference to the great white throne ultimately. It's a general principle, but I think the part of it that I can answer specifically is not just for believers. Okay. Did Job live before or after the flood? Well, let me think about this before I give a quick answer. I think Job was before, but now I have to think about that. Is that right? Okay, good. Job was before, and I think Job, like Methuselah and several others, died before the flood so they didn't have to suffer the punishment. Yeah, predates. And so that's also reason Moses is collecting all these things, including the book of Job, the book of Adam, the book of Shem. He's collecting them, compiling them, and, re- and recording them in one book, which the Pentateuch was one book. We now divide it into five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But he also did that. He also, tra- he also transcribed jo- the book of Job, which many people believe is the, actually the oldest, that he transcribed Job before he did the other five. That's it. That's it. Any other? Uh, Jonathan. Yes. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to share with you a theory. Okay. Don't go back and say that's in the Bible because it's not. Okay. I'm going to share with the theory. It's not my own. Okay. But um, I believe the Zodiac is something that Satan has twisted that was originally made for God's glory. What do you have in the Zodiac? The Virgin, Virgo, the Lion, Pisces, the Fish. You got all these symbols in this in, in space, and you've got Libra, justice, you've got all these things out there that, again, Satan is twisted. Don't read your horoscope tomorrow. I'm not suggesting you do that, okay? Um, all that stuff. But I do believe there's, a, there's even some literature you can look up online called the Gospel and the Stars. And I've heard, again, from missionaries, that when they've uncut, when they've come to see people who haven't even seen a white person or a Christian or anything like that, not that white people are only Christians, but from our context, uh, uh, sending people to different parts of the world, um, They've come and they've said, yes, we've, we've heard this story. It's, and they're like, how'd you hear it? And they're like, it's in the stars. I've heard that before. Okay? So um, here's the best way to break it down. Hank Hanegraaff does this really well. God has revealed the light in three ways. The light of conscience, oh, the light of creation, the light of conscience, and the light of Christ. The light of conscience is, I know when I do wrong, there's something not right. And there's somebody who's telling me this is not right. There's somebody higher than I am that says I'm doing wrong. And if you respond to your conscience in the right way, which most of mankind didn't in the dispensation of conscience and still today, then God reveals to you through the creation that, hey, I'm here. Because the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the stars show forth his handiwork. So the stars, the mountains, flowers, they all point to not only an intelligent designer, but a very loving, compassionate designer. That he didn't just make food, just the nutritious, but he made it delicious at the same time, showing his kindness to us. And so if I respond to that light, then he reveals to me the light of Christ, which is Christ came to earth to share his life as a ransom for many. So if we respond to each step of light, God shows us more light. But the problem is most people at the very beginning reject creation and reject that and they reject conscience. And so therefore no more light light is revealed to them. And so people follow this carefully. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. People do not go to hell for rejecting Christ. They go to hell because they're sinners who reject God in their life. Jesus came to die to fix that. So if, if you had really bad cancer and a physician came to you and said, hey, it's not too late. I can operate today and save you. And you say, no, did you die of rejecting the doctor or because re- or you have cancer? You died because you had cancer. You just made it worse by rejecting the doctor. So people die and go to hell because of their sin condition the disease, the cancer of their soul. Jesus is the physician that could heal them from it, but they also reject him. Does that make sense? So that's why you, when an atheist says, well, how can you send people to hell for rejecting Christ? No, they're going to hell because they're sinners who rebel against God. And Christ is the, the doctor willing to cure them, but they're not willing to accept it. Any more come in? All right, I saw another hand. This will be our last question. Sure. I have no idea what Adam and Eve were. I do know that in them was the potential for all this diversity. It's just like 
you and your wife could both have brown eyes and then have a kid with blue eyes because the latent gene in you is in you, okay? So you have a lot more diversity. Now, as time goes on, we have less and less diversity in our DNA, but Adam and Eve had the whole potential for everything in them. And so as time went on, more people got more and more diverse, but that was all part of God's design. I would say it would have happened gradually, but maybe. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much diversity would be there. I really don't know. I, I will say this. Um, I think God is trying to teach us a lesson through nature. Okay? Whenever you breed, hyperbreed something in dogs, poodles have what? The weeping eyes and ears, right? Dachshunds have the spinal problems. Labradors have the hip problems. I can go on and on. Of every dog that's bred, inbred, 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 they, they develop more and more um, mutations and deficiencies and ailments, if you will. But as soon as you connect them with another breed, and basically a mutt has none of those, okay? You could take that over to the human race. White people have sickle, I mean, have a melanoma and carcinoma. Black people have sickle cell. And you could pick every, every group of people, and they have their own thing. But when they intermarry, those things all go away. So, I mean, it just, uh, I don't, to, some people have gone through the Bible and tried to say, oh, mixed race marriages is unbiblical. No, it's not. You're reading the wrong Bible. That's not at all. The mixed race marriages, mixed marriages was believers marrying unbelievers. Jews who were worshiping the true and living God weren't supposed to marry unbelievers. Now, but people like Rahab could become a Jew just by changing the God they believed in, and she's in the line of Christ. So there's several Gentiles in there, and so it's not, it's, it, it's what you believe, not the color of your skin. So, all right. Is that it? I already said. have another one if you want. What time is it? All right. All right. In favor of one more question, raise your hand. Let's get out of here. Raise your hand. Okay. One more question. Here we go. Some of you didn't raise your hand either time. That's okay. How to get people that have no reason to go to church without... How to get people to, I'm guessing it's to go to church without being too aggressive as far as asking them. Yeah. So I've heard a statistic by um, the Barna research said that 63% of non-church goers said they would go if a friend of theirs invited them. That's almost two-thirds. So simply by inviting. And so when, uh, but if you say, I just want to, I want you to come to church to me sometime, you know, that's like when you say, I'm going to clean my garage someday. It just never happens, right? Um, but if you say specific time, hey, on the 22nd, we're have a candlelight Christmas carol night. Would you join me? That kind of nails it, nails it down to a time and a place. So we try to have things here often where something special is happening on a Sunday or another time where you have something to invite to. Um, but you have to get some, uh, what was relationship capital first. As you become their friend and you show that you care and you listen, then when you invite, it means even more, okay? A, a pastor went into a coffee shop and he put up a sign that says, I'll buy your coffee if you'll listen to my story. No one did. <laughs> he flipped the sign over and wrote a new one and says, I'll listen to your story and buy your coffee. There was a line of people. And many of them sat down and said, hey, I'll buy the coffee, but I'm glad that someone wants to hear my story. So listen, what do we say? Bless Begin with prayer, listen carefully, eat, serve them, share the gospel. Okay. All right, let's stand and let's, let, I said one more. Okay. <laughs> um, it is the 22nd. <laughs> I see what you're doing. I thought you were, we won't count that as a question. All right. So we're going to, our, our uh, benediction scripture this morning is telling us what to do, and that's Matthew chapter 28. Let's read it together with confidence. Verse 19 says, therefore, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days until the end of the age. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.